Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Rathbone Street in Fitzrovia, W1. Three streets east of the deadly soap of George Antonio. One street west of the Charlotte Street robbery. Two streets south of the scattered body parts by Louis Voisin. And a short walk from the crying weasel. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated on the corner of Rathbone Street and Charlotte Place is the Duke of York pub. A decent little boozer frequented by locals as most of the tourists are unlikely to pass it. Licensed in 1757, it was named after the younger brother of George III. But above the door, you may notice a portrait which resembles a very different Duke of York. An alleged Randy Royal, a noble nonce, and a tax-paying pedo, possibly owing to his inability to sweat, had to warm up his todger by bothering a young girl's foof. Which is not to say that just because someone is infamous for one thing, that's all they'll ever do. The same could be said for the murder which occurred here. As on the night of Friday the 12th of December 1969, during the height of apartheid and the demise of the British Empire, a fight occurred between two groups of black and white males, during which a young boy lost his life. But why? Depending on whose side was taken when this particular story was told, this could be seen as a struggle against oppression, racism and prejudice. Or simply an all-too-tragically-familiar tale about arrogance, a temper, a simple spark, and a bunch of idiots who were drunk. But what was its origin? My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 243 In Black and White.
sentenced to life for murder. 19-year-old Sazarendran Moodley, who most of his friends called Sozan, wasn't the kind of person you'd expect to be convicted of murdering a young man. But he was. Born on the 11th of June, 1950, Sozan was one of four children to Doria, a housewife, and Balasundram, a schoolmaster. Raised in the South African city of Johannesburg, during the tinder-dry height of the brutal apartheid, as a family of African and Asian origin, they saw the extremities of wealth and poverty, freedom and oppression, in a country deeply divided between blacks and whites. As the youngest, Susan always looked up to his older brother Castri. And as they grew up, becoming fine young men who were both six feet tall and pencil thin, they were often mistaken for one another, with the only way to tell them apart being that Castri had a neat little mustache, and Susan didn't. Johannesburg in the 1950s and 60s was a difficult time to be black, let alone an Indian immigrant. Having left school aged 15, Sosan worked as an apprentice printer at Golden Era Printing in the city, earning himself a decent wage and a set of skills which would put him in good stead for the future. He was good, decent, and though a little hot-tempered, he never got into any bother with the police. In 1912, half a century earlier, the South African Native National Congress was established as a black nationalist organization and a political party with the mission to maintain the voting rights of coloreds, being persons of mixed race, and black Africans in the Cape province. Renamed the African National Congress, the ANC would spearhead the fight to eradicate apartheid and South Africa's policy of racial separation and discrimination. Across the next seven decades, they would fight hard and many would die. But with apartheid finally quashed in 1990, four years later, ANC President Nelson Mandela was elected to head South Africa's first multi-ethnic government changing the nation forever. In 1963, aged 24, Sosun's older brother Castri came to the UK to study, obtaining a general certificate of education from the Elliott School in Putney. Although he returned home to undertake a degree at the University of Durban, as an anti-apartheid activist, he quit in 1967 for what he called political reasons. Obtaining a visa, in 1968, he married, he moved to Fulham, and as a translator for political organisations like Amalgamated Protections on Oxford Street and later the United Association for the Protection of Trade in Burner Street. When charged for his only known crime, the police report stated he is an active member of the African National Congress, which in brackets they wrote, the Black Panthers. In 
And that was part of the problem. Miscommunication. By 1969, when the murder took place, people in South Africa knew the difference between the African National Congress and the Black Panthers. The Black Nationalist Organization, headed up by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in California. But here, most British people didn't see the difference between them. Especially as our government and the press were still supporting apartheid. From 1960, with the ANC banned by the entirely white South African government, and with Britain being one of South Africa's biggest trading partners and investors, the ANC were forced to become an underground political movement. For Castry, London's West End was key to the ANC's struggle. If you walk down any of those streets today, you won't see a single memorial to its past. But across a few streets in Fitzrovia, through the 1960s, it was a political hotbed of the Black Freedom Movement. A discreet little flat above 24 Goode Street was the secret headquarters of the South African Communist Party in exile. 39 Goode Street was where the African Communist Quarterly was printed, miniaturized, and then smuggled overseas. The upper two floors of 89 Charlotte Street were the offices of the anti-apartheid movement. And before moving to their infamous offices at nearby 28 Penton Street, directly opposite the Duke of York pub, was the ANC's London headquarters at 48 Rathbone Street. And yet for Sozin, he only came to London to be a printer. Arriving on a work visa at Heathrow Airport on the 11th of August 1968, 15 months before the murder, even the police report describes Sozin as a man of sober habits and a good character. And unlike many others who were caught up in this deadly incident, Although he is known to associate with members of the ANC, such as his friends and his brother, he is not a member of the organization. In brackets, Black Power. Getting a place at the London College of Printing in Borough High Street. One year later, Susan qualified as a print manager financially aided by his father to ensure that he would never be broke or hungry. In September 1969, he attended a 12-week course in linotyping at a college in King's Cross. He wasn't political, and he wasn't radical. He was just a young lad in a new country, looking for work as a printer. And yet in a fight between a group of blacks and whites he stabbed an unarmed youth to death. In his book, London Recruits, The Secret War Against Apartheid, Ronnie Casserells, an ex-leader of the ANC's military wing, described how 
after Nelson Mandela was jailed for life in 1964. This spelt the nadir of the liberation struggle. So a group commander was formed to plan daring acts of demonstration that the ANC was not dead, including the broadcast of anti-apartheid messages, as well as one of their most infamous tactics, bombs. Only these were not designed to kill or maim. ANC recruit Eddie Adams described his training like this. In an empty office on Charlotte Street, Ronnie and I crouched behind some desks while he explained what we called leaflet bombs. These consisted of a plastic bucket with a platform, piled with propaganda leaflets, over a tube which had explosives in it. When triggered, it would send leaflets a hundred feet into the air, injuring no one, causing what the British would term as a bit of a rumpus, and educating as many onlookers as possible. But as an illegal political organization, hiding in a pro-apartheid country, they played a dangerous game with dangerous people who wanted to keep them under surveillance or silenced for good. As from 1976 to 1994, 140 Gower Street, just two streets over, was the headquarters of the British Secret Service. And 200 Gower Street was the home of BOSS, the South African Bureau of State Security, the secret police. Eyes were everywhere, ears were eavesdropping, and they didn't know who they could trust. So it was no surprise in 1961 that the headquarters of the anti-apartheid movement was bombed. Then in 1982, 13 years after the murder, the South African secret police exploded a 24-pound bomb in the new offices of the ANC on Panton Street, killing no one, injuring a janitor, and destroying a wall. It sent an all too subtle message that they were being watched and were very much under threat. So it's no surprise that the ANC's offices on the first floor of 48 Rathbone Street were so discreet. Situated opposite the Duke of York pub, beside a hotel and along from the eateries on Charlotte Place, this vague brown brick corner building had three doors leading up to its three higher floors. But with no signs, no posters and no flags, it just looked like any other office in this dark little corner of the city. It could have been anything. A storeroom, a help group, a charity or an accountant's. And not being an ANC member, Sozin was not known to frequent these offices as the nearest he ever came to them was to pay a visit to the pub for a pint with his pals, who were regulars. Also from Johannesburg, 31-year-old Sakeparakash Nanan was a married man with three children in South Africa, who worked as a teacher at Wilston High School and was the clerk for Abbey Life Assurance. 
and as a more militant member of the ANC's London group. Although he wasn't the biggest, the boldest, the bravest, but was often the most vocal. He wore the easily identifiable uniform of the Black Panther Party, the black leather jacket and the black beret. And whereas Nanan was all mouth and no trousers, Linda Moore was too often all fists and no brains. Born in Queenstown, 27-year-old Linda was described as aggressive and bullish. An aimless thug with two criminal convictions for theft and assault was expelled from Blythewood's institution for political reasons, struggled to hold down jobs, illegally arrived in the UK with no passport in 1967, and lived by himself in a small, poorly furnished room in Islington, as paid for by national assistance. Just like Sozin, they had their own reasons to be in London, at that time when acts of rebellion, marches and demonstrations were rife. And yet their ANC membership didn't automatically mean that everything they said or did was politically motivated. Friday the 12th of December, 1969. It was a year of huge highs and low lows. As Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, the ANC held its first conference in exile. The House of Lords voted to abolish the death penalty, and Chicago police killed two members of the Black Panther Party. But for Sozin, it marked the end of his linotyping course. As a six-foot South African Asian, who was pencil-thin and dressed in a blue suit with a white Macintosh, Sozin stuck out of the crowd. But then he had no reason to hide, as he was an artist, not an agitator. Being well-mannered, he handed his teachers a present as a thank you. And keen to mark the end of his education, he bought a bottle of whiskey from the off-license, even though he wasn't much of a drinker. Sozin would later state, I'd been celebrating. I had a fair number of drinks. I arrived at the Duke of York pub at 7.30pm, where we met his brother Castri, Castri's wife Mel, his pal Satya, and several others. Situated on opposing corners of Charlotte Place, the Duke of York pub may have been barely eight feet from the ANC headquarters in the heart of the Black Freedom Movement. But this area, not being known for just one thing, was also part of London's film district, its second-hand jewellery quarter, a haven for haberdashers, and many of its pubs were infamous haunts of radical writers. Not being activists... Sosin and his pals had no reason to pop into the ANC HQ. So as planned, they popped into the Duke of York pub, where they were regulars. And of the 30 people who were in there, no one was a total stranger. 
racially, the mood across the city was no better or worse than usual. With the ramifications of the 1958 Notting Hill race riots still felt, as well as the 1966 riots in Cleveland, and several major riots were bubbling under in Brixton, Toxteth, Hansworth, Broadwater Farm and Chapeltown. But this was just a pub. The Duke of York was a small corner pub with doors on Charlotte Street and Rathbone Place, barely 20 feet apart. Dominated by a semicircular bar with bench seats around the edge and pockmarked with little tables and chairs. It had a jukebox which played all the latest hits, like Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine and Ziggy Stardust's Space Oddity, with a pinball machine and a football table out back. As always, being a Friday night, which for many was payday, the bar was busy, with shoulders rubbing against shoulders, an occasional bit of argy-bargy, and no spare seats for any latecomers. As a regular's pub, everyone split into groups, with a table of white youths, a table of black youths, a gaggle of old geezers at the bar, no solo groups of girls drinking Lambrini, as unaccompanied women were banned from pubs until the 1970s. But a mixed group of lads playing snooker, as often sport, will bring people together. There were many witnesses to what had happened that night, most of whom were white. And although the police report makes it clear which of the South Africans were members of the ANC or associated with members of the ANC, no one else's political views were investigated. But there were several criminals. At the bar, Peter Llewellyn Jones had served two years for smuggling drugs in Spain. And having fled the country, he was wanted by the Greek police and convicted by a court in Athens to three years for drug smuggling. George Hayden was imprisoned for nicking petrol. Fred Atterby for pilfering clothes. Melvin Goodins had stolen a car. And Cyril Boer had persistently opportuned male persons for immoral purposes. Behind the bar, John Dellum had been convicted of possession of an offensive weapon and the assistant manager John Moore was, wait for it, fined £10 for stealing a tomato sauce dispenser. But then again, just because someone is infamous for something they've done, it doesn't mean that that's all they do. At 9.15pm, a group of white youths came in and sat at a vacated table by the door. Two students, Nicholas Clark and Michael Flanagan. Roseanne Barry, a typist. Pauline Batson, a trainee dental nurse. All of whom were aged 16 to 19. Followed by Philip Kent, a printer. And his bespectacled brother, Robert. The young man 
who would be murdered. The atmosphere was typical for a Friday night. As Michael told the police, Philip and Nicholas had a game with two coloured men on the football machine, as everyone else sat drinking and chatting. Robert and Sosan sat by opposite doors, and as far as we know, they hadn't met or spoken. But at 9.50pm, the mood abruptly changed. Into the pub walked Linda in a dark brown suit and Nanan in his Black Panther berry. As they pushed and shoved their way in, causing drinks to spill, voices to raise, and almost every witness to agree that they were determined to cause trouble. With Peter the drug smuggler perched at the bar, Linda and Nanan faced him down when he wouldn't or couldn't budge over to give them a little more space. But was this a racist act, a principle, or a matter of logistics for Peter, Linda, or Nanan? As Linda grabbed Peter by the lapels and shouted in his face, although several men of different colour came to the aid of whoever had a similar skin tone to them, before it kicked off, the landlord had split up the group, and even though Linda had invited Peter outside for a fight, the incident was over for now. It seemed like nothing, an insignificant little moment, which happens in a pub, on every week, in every city, as someone who's had too much to drink tries to take on another drunk for a pointless purpose. But as fast as the anger had quelled, it erupted just as quick. Sozin stated, Linda jumped on my table, and launching himself from a bench, he began to fight with the other brother, by which he meant Philip Kent. Why? We don't know because everything went into chaos. Philip broke a glass on Linda's head, Sosan said, and then suddenly, everyone was fighting. As Robert stepped in to protect his brother, Sosan said, I didn't pay much attention until the two white brothers came over and joined in the quarrel. I then got up, I went over, and I tried to stop the fight. The brother with the glasses pinned my arms behind me, this being Robert, as the melee continued in the bar. With bottles being smashed, benches being thrown, and Michael being hurled across a table. As all the while, Nanan made a swift exit, and Peter the drug smuggler, who some said had incited it, was ignored. With the action reported by Rosemary and Pauline, who had wisely sought refuge by the ladies' toilets, the police stated there was little doubt that it was the coloreds who were the aggressors. With the ringleader being Linda, 
who stood on the bar to kick Robert in the face. And as the boy fell to the floor, Linda repeatedly kicked him as he lay bleeding. And seeing another victim, Linda moved on to Michael to do the same. And although Sutton and Robert were only participants on the periphery, it was then that this happened, and nobody knows why. From his pocket, Sutton pulled a six-inch knife. Whether he carried it for self-defense, as a souvenir, for a friend, or as a tool of his trade being an artist, neither was suggested in the police report. With the pub in panic, only a few saw the weapon, only a handful heard the girl scream, he's got a knife. And although Robert ordered him to put the knife away, in a single fast swipe, Susan confessed, I then stabbed the white boy with the glasses. Then he fell to the floor. And although, at that point, almost everybody ran, even though Robert was unconscious and bleeding profusely, again, Linda kicked him and then fled. Called at 9.50pm, the police arrived three minutes later. But with the landlord having cleaned up, the pub didn't look that bad. By the broken glass, the blood, the screaming girl, and Robert, who lay silent. Nanan was detained on site. Linda was arrested at the ANC offices. And Susan was apprehended just two streets away with a knife given to a friend, quickly found. Transferred to Middlesex Hospital. Having suffered a single stab wound just above his right ear, so much force had been used that the blade had sliced through his 7mm thick skull and penetrated his temporal lobe, resulting in a massive hemorrhage. One week later, Robert died of his injuries, and Sosm was charged with his murder. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 18th of June 1970, of those involved in the fight, only the black men were convicted. With Castry and Nanan sentenced to a six-month suspended sentence, and Linda sent down for six months for assault. But with Robert's blood on the blade... Susan's fingerprints on the handle, an ID parade identifying him as the killer, and later confessing, I stabbed the white boy. I'm sorry I stabbed him. 19-year-old trainee printer, Sosarendon Moodley of South Africa, was sentenced to life in prison. But with the witness statements being such a confusing mess that Peter identified the killer as Sosan's brother Castry. And with the crime scene having been cleaned up, and neither man having met before, no one could explain the motive for the killing. Not their friends, not their family, nor Sosan himself. 
Was it political? Was it personal? Or was it as simple as black and white? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Be a pig to edit, and why is it a pig to edit? Because of one bird, one bird, one effing bird is outside the boat and is having a good old chirp, even though it's wet outside. It's like, oh, yeah, chirp, 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 yeah, oh, oh, listen, look at me, everyone, look at me, chirp, 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 little bastard, little bastard. Even the coot had the decency to not be, not be massively annoying. I mean, he was annoying, but you know. Not as normal as he as he usually is. Oh dear, so there we go. What time is it? Quarter to two. Right, good. Welcome to Extra Mile, everyone. The unscripted, unedited bit. Uh, we will do some quiz questions. Uh, I don't really need to make a cup of tea. I've already kind of got a half of a coffee going. I'm going to go to the coffee shop in a bit anyway. Uh, got two coffee shops. Two of the same coffee shops right next to me now. I'm literally... One is... A three, three, four minute walk away, and the other one is a four to five minute walk away. You know, I never understand why they do that. Really doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, unscripted bit, and then we'll do some quiz questions, and then uh, I'm going to dive into some extra stuff because with this episode, 
I pieced it all together and I, I was going to dive into all the stuff after they were arrested. But then I realised that the focus on the story should really have just been the reason, the motive for the murder itself. So that's what we focus on. So we're going to do that. So uh, it's all go, isn't it? It's all go. Uh, it's pissing down outside. Lovely. Luckily, I've, I've got enough coal. Uh, I'm going to have the fire on later on, which is all very nice. All geared up for tomorrow. Tomorrow, as of time of recording, is Valentine's Day. So, obviously, lots of gifts for Eva. Lots of gifts. I bought a, a, a distillery. Uh, so, she can just put a straw in through the window and just do what she needs to do. Uh, I'm going to be her loyal slave for the day, as I am for every day. But, you know, she likes to know that I'm her loyal slave. So, I, so, every day, I send her a note saying, I'm your loyal slave. Do with me what you will. And she does. She does. Ah, uh, so that's all good. Oh, um, we're doing this a regular thing. So uh, myself, Adam from UK True Crime and Paul from True Crime Enthusiast, we do a roundtable discussion every Sunday. It's live. It goes out on, on YouTube, so you can check it on that. There's a link on my social media. You could do that. It's free. It's an hour. It's a chat. Uh, there's a little chat box in there so you can send messages to us and, and questions which is good people like to interact that's good uh, uh we we get some nice guests in so yeah if you f- fancy doing that please do uh, i think i think we also upload it to 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 the social media as well so you can enjoy that as well if you like uh what else has happened not much is going on in my life except i i was boxing up some mugs the other day because i'd had a nice meeting in town with some people and i wanted to send them a murder mile mug of goodies uh, and what i always do is open up the box which had been there for about a year and i opened it up just to check that the, the mug's okay and that it's the right mug on the inside and when i opened it up there was a little spider having having his winter holiday he was in there he'd made a little nest uh, he got uh, his food was there, so the the uh, a fly that he was eating, and I was like, ah, I'm glad I checked this before I sent it off. So there we go. So someone has today will have received a nice mug only without a spider in it. So there we go. Always good. Wow, Michael, your life is so exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. Whoa, I wonder what excitement will happen next week. Probably nothing. Uh, let's do some quiz questions. And then we'll dive into some extra stuff. So get ready. Uh, don't forget, I'll do the answers at the very end. And I haven't edited the first part of the episode yet. So I may take things out of the episode, which uh, means you can't answer the question. Or I might just balls them up by mistake. But this is unedited. Thank God. So there we go. Question number one. In which part of West London is Rathbone Street in? I.e. Wardour Street is in Soho. So which part of, part of West London is Rathbone Street in? There you go. Oh, I'm really burpy today. Question number two. The Duke of York pub is named after the brother of which English king? There we go. Question number three. Whose face is on the sign outside of the pub? Question number four. What job did Sosan's father do? Question number five, what was the name of the printing company where Sosan got his first job? Question number six, who was the first head of South Africa's first multi-ethnic government? That's an easy question. Question number seven, Castry obtained a GCE, but what does GCE mean? Hang on. Yeah, GCE. A GCE. Uh, question number eight. What political group did the police confuse the ANC with? 
I've mentioned that about 50 times in this episode. You've got to get that one right. Uh, question number nine. Susan was qualified for what job? And question number 10. What 12-week course had he just finished? Uh, so let's dive into some of the extra stuff that's in there. As, as mentioned in the start, kind of uh, Susan and Castry are v- very similar to each other. They're brothers. What do you expect? Uh, they've got the same mother and father, so they're likely to be uh, very similar. Um, so, uh, which is why at the start I kind of mentioned about the. Originally, I was going to add this into the story, but I thought it just confused it, so I put it right at the end. But um, they're very similar. Uh, they're uh, six foot tall pencil thin the only difference is that castry has uh, a little mustache and uh Sosen doesn't uh, so with the um it was actually it was interesting it was that philip dude have i have i got this here i thought this was it i thought i had the statement here so philip who was a drug smuggler who was at the bar who's the one it's weird it's kind of with a story it's kind of him that this is where the argy-bargy happens, that Linda and Nanan come in and Philip's at the bar and Philip won't move over because he's sat on his stool and he's having a pint. He's one of these guys who sits at the bar and he's like, oh, it's my pub. Uh, I've bought a pint. I'm going to nurse a shit pint of Foster's for about four hours, having spent two quid. And therefore, this is my pub because I annoy the bar staff all the time. He, I, he seems like he's that kind of prick. Um, but uh, he actually said that uh, he was certain that it, it, so he gave three statements and uh, on the first one he said no no it was definitely Sultan and he knew them he'd um they were both wearing entirely different clothes so obviously as mentioned in the episode you got Sultan wearing a white Macintosh and a blue suit and then you got uh Castry who was all in dark clothes um they're both similar but one has a mustache and one doesn't and he'd known them both for at least the last two and a half months and he admitted that and yet he got them wrong uh didn't put this in the story as well but also uh sozen had uh, some cuts on his face he'd uh, we're not too sure how he got them it's not mentioned in uh any of the the police reports or anything but he'd whether it was a fight or whether he fell or something he got cuts on his right cheek so that made him even more identifiable but still you had people like like philip going oh no it's definitely him definitely him um look as you can see it was you know that, that this was the hardest thing about the episode to piece this together i've made it as simple for you as possible but going through the police files was an absolute nightmare because you've got people saying uh there was a black youth did this there was a white guy did that and it's like okay thank you for that that's very useful okay you've got 30 people in a room some are black some are white who's who and it's a real nightmare like trying to pin it down like someone going yeah there was a guy in a blue top yeah great thank you for that thicko so it's really difficult to try and pin down who was who so uh, hopefully i've got that across but then again it's witness statements isn't it it's always confusing it's never accurate um people's tempers are kind of frayed and their emotions are high and therefore they get things wrong and witness statements are only over 30 percent right at best so uh luckily we had bar staff were there luckily uh, some of the girls were out back so they were able to watch it uh one of their friends was there as well i can't remember who it was but yeah there was a real melee going on like people being thrown over chairs uh someone throwing uh a Uh, throwing someone over tables there was chairs being thrown at people but when you look at the crime scene photos i i looked at the crime scene photos and i thought that i know the pub really well because i've drank there quite a few times but i looked at the crime scene photos i thought they must have taken it like a couple of weeks later because it looks clean but then you look in the corner and you can see a dustpan and brush and the barman and 
the staff had literally cleared everyone out except the guy who was dying. Um, and then they sweeped up everything. So it looks really nice and clean. So they really, really cocked up the crime scene. So the crime scene doesn't look like anything. Uh, what are they saying? Uh, as mentioned, uh, Nanan uh, was detained on site. Uh, and the landlord's wife, she was working that night. She pointed to him and said he was one of the ringleaders. Uh, as did the uh, John, who was one of the barmen, said he started it all. He started punching him. I, I think he was making reference to Peter there. Uh, Nanan replied, I don't know anything about it, man. Because, uh, as you know, you have to end every sentence with man. I always hate people who end sentence with mate. I got a nasty email off someone ages ago, and they 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 ended every sentence with mate. And I was like, if if you don't like me, don't call me mate. It's like we're not mates. It's like ah, thick fuckers who do that anyway. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Fleeing from the scene. So this is what happened. So everyone started fleeing from the scene. Some people were arrested on site. Some people fled from the scene. So uh, Sozin had purchased himself a, a bottle of Teacher's Highland Cream, sophisticated, um, and then. Uh, most of the group actually met up in the Cambridge and the Cambridge is a pub on the corner of Charlotte Street and Rathbone Place so literally a 30 second walk away they congregated in there um, uh, Satya who was a friend of Sozan and his brother uh, was a student as well and where is it he said uh, uh, here we are um, uh, I suddenly believe that Sozin may have been the person who did the stabbing. I went to the toilet to speak to him. In the toilet, I asked him if he had a knife. I asked him if he had used a knife in the pub, meaning the stabbing, and he replied he had. I then asked him uh, to give me the knife because I didn't want him to do uh, anything as, as in to, to hurt anyone else or himself. Uh, I felt he wasn't in his sober senses. Don't forget, he doesn't normally drink. Uh, and then he handed me the closed knife, which I put in my pocket and went home. So um, Sozan was walking along the street drinking. Uh, uh, detective Constable Feenan and temporary Detective Constable Jones went past. Uh, John Moore, who was one of the barmen, was in the car with him and said, that's him right there. Don't forget, he's easy to spot. He's wearing a, a blue suit with a big collar and he's wearing a white Macintosh. So he's really easy to find. Um uh, uh, Robert, who was the uh, the boy who was stabbed, uh, we don't really know much about him. I would have done a backstory on him, but there was nothing in there, nothing at all. Taken to Middlesex Hospital, which is in this same area, it's literally a street up. It's like you, you could walk to it in a minute. So yeah, that's why uh, rushed into there straight into theatre from casualty. Senior neurosurgeon uh, operated on him straight away. He was unconscious and breathe had to be had to be mechanically aided so he could breathe he'd been stabbed in the head on the right hand side just an inch above his right ear with a one inch wound where the knife had gone in and it had retracted uh, and you need to use a lot of force on here because it's quite a heavy bone there uh, and it's roughly around seven uh, centimeters thick um so th normally the skull protects the brain from damage through high resistance to deformation uh, and it says here that you need a force of about one ton to reduce the diameter of the skull by a centimeter. Uh, so actually, it's quite a lot of force. He, it's weird with um, Sozin. Apparently, everyone said some people said they saw him with the knife underneath his uh, his Macintosh, which was over his arm, and then they said it was waist height. But he stabbed him sideways into the side of the head. So um, it's not like it was an accidental 
stabbing it's like this is you can't accidentally stab someone in the head and stab through the skull into the brain this is a very deliberate act but if you think about it like if he was defending himself wouldn't he stab him in the stomach or or in the hands or something there was no defensive wounds at all um but this was a very deliberate deliberate act this is something that involves kind of anger and passion it makes you wonder why was it there why was it in the side of the head not elsewhere not in the thigh not in the groin as you'd probably expect um so yeah he was stabbed in the temporal lobe which is the part of the brain that controls memory speech and comprehension but he uh never regained he remained in critical condition he was in the cavendish benting ward for a week and then he died of his injuries um police were uh police scooped everyone up and took them into marleybone police station uh which is over on seymour street um and basically all the witnesses were there and um it's kind of it's kind of an interesting one because you've got as as mentioned this is very much a story about people in their little groups as groups of blacks and groups of whites and you get a few who are kind of mixed but not really that much it's kind of everyone keeps to themselves so the police said that everyone in the kind of the charge room and they were kind of pro- process all of these witnesses like they, they even said that the the room wasn't big enough to have all of the witnesses in there so they were really struggling with that but uh yeah like uh where was it um it's you, you have to kind of take a lot of this from the perspective of people in that era so it makes it makes it hard to know exactly what what the real truth is here like even in some of the statements as well like with all the black people it's kind of like they're just known by their names and whether they're associated with the anc or whether they're members of the anc or whether they associate with members of the anc that's always in there but no political beliefs for anyone who's white with all the black people it's about uh, if they're unemployed that's listed um but with the white people they're always given mr like mr melvin graham and mrs esther gooding like they always get their titles and their job statuses um but never anyone else um it it doesn't come off well for them because obviously everyone's been drinking uh but uh let's read this this is from the police report it said it should be mentioned that whereas the white people were willing to assist in any way they could the colored men refused to cooperate uh, don't forget this also could be part of it because they've come from south africa and their kind of police force is quite brutal and impressive therefore you know there's been bombings by the secret police over here by south african groups who are kind of here so, so you know they have a reason to kind of for hatred of the police and given the fact that in this era britain is which you know our police force is funded by the taxpayers or and uh joe's government controlled therefore they have every right to kind of not trust the police so you you can kind of understand it from that perspective there uh it says uh they treated the whole matter in a totally irresponsible manner shouting singing and swearing sometimes in afrikaans sometimes in english the situation deteriorated and became un intolerable in custody colored men were heard to chant slogans and meant and and on mention of robert's name uh don't forget by that point he's not dead he's but he's critical uh they laughed uproariously and shouted who cares and white trash could have happened could not have happened it could have been one of them it could have been a few of them but don't forget everyone's being lumped together so yeah in these reports it's always the coloreds did this but it, it could be one 
it could be a few we, we we just don't know so it's really hard to get this right um bear in mind uh, that a number of white witnesses were acquainted with the colored men and in some cases uh, knew them by either their name or nickname and it could not be obviated that the both sides may have met on their arrival at the police station di parker decided to form uh, decided that a form of confrontation should take place each side was then individually given the opportunity to view the other and make comment comments that they felt was relevant uh, i don't that's something that we don't do anymore but back then you could kind of get a group of people in a big room and just say right argue it out and we're going to take down the notes obviously that's the way they did it uh, what else have we got Susan's statement his first statement this was i'm not going to read all of his statements um but if you're if you're a, a patron subscriber this is what i do on the um i do a thing called bang at bad nanometers and if you enjoy extra mile and me reading all the stuff that you won't get anywhere else i save all the really really exciting stuff like the pieces that you can't get anywhere else for bad nanometers and it's available to everyone on bad nanometers so uh, even if you pay like three dollars a month you get you get this as a freebie on every every thursday night you get these so haven't decided what i'll do for this but first statement of Sosom was and this is it is in its entirety and it's short he said i went to the duke of york pub around half estate i saw some friends i don't know their names i saw a fight between friends of mine and a couple of guys from the pub they were white guys and they were fighting with my friends i don't know how the fight started i left as soon as the fight started my brother was there i left by myself that's the end of, of it as far as i'm concerned and that was his uh, his statement uh, as we know it was it was all all a lie uh but people do that don't they when they when they're confronted they panic and they they go oh, oh nothing to do with me or they do that thing as they do on all the uh like 24 hours in a in uh, police custody no comment no comment uh, no comment stare at the ground no comment no comment uh, no comment <laughs> so, oh, you just want to slap them don't you you just want to slap them why why not just say instead of saying no comment why just not just say i am guilty just have <laughs> done with it um that day so uh uh Sosom was charged on the 12th of december 1969 for uh well it's actually on the 13th for making an affray and the gbh of robert kent against the peace because robert's still alive by that point uh castry was charged uh again with making an affray um in the company of everyone who was mentioned there uh nanon was also charged with making an affray which is basically fighting <laughs> oh i got hiccups uh as was linda it's interesting with this that as even though people say that linda and nanon were the kind of the the ringleaders and the agitators of this and if you think about it if they hadn't come in acting like the old billy big bollocks and getting all shouty and mouthy none of this would have happened kind of if this is the way it happened with peter the drugs drug smuggler if he would have made a little bit of space for them maybe they could have had a pint and sat down and shut up and not been all mouthy but we just don't know what this is the thing it's it's hard to pin down who who does what and and as mentioned with the um the witnesses with with the fact that we don't know the political we know the political motivations of those who are associated with the ANC because the police de deliberately made an effort to kind of go, well, these are ANC members and these are people associated. Do you know, even if you're not 
they don't know your political affiliations then they go well you associated with someone uh to do with the anc it's like well do you know i i could unwittingly i could probably say i'm i'm associated with communists and nazis do you know some people who i've probably met in my life are probably secret nazis or or communists but you know it doesn't mean i'm a, and it, it makes it sound bad doesn't it when you say oh he's an associate with a communist or a nazi you could be you just might not know it or you might not give a fuck like other some people's political beliefs who cares who really cares um the knife uh the knife itself was found the next day uh that evening they went to satya's home over in moreland road over in kenton uh and he was honest about it he he said uh got the knife uh i took it off him he said the uh satya said the following afternoon i opened the knife and saw blood on the top of the blade uh the tip i wiped it clean with a towel well done there uh i found i couldn't close it again so i put it in the drawer uh police arrived um they by this point uh sozin had already said to them i i I did this i did the stabbing and i gave the knife to to my friend uh satya said i would like to say that i never intended to hide the knife only to keep it for him until i could see him again but obviously by that point he didn't know that he'd been arrested um yep robert died 19th of december 1969 um uh, at 8.45 p.m. on the Cavendish Bentinck Ward. Uh, Professor Keith Simpson at Guy's Hospital did the, the autopsy. Nice and simple. A simple stab wound to the side of the head. No defensive wounds to the hands, the wrists or the arms. Uh, cause of death was brain injury. Um, blood found matching Roberts uh, was found on Susan's jacket on the raincoat of one of the other guys, a guy called Littleton Bean. I, I've kind of erased him from this. Um, uh, none of Robert's blood was found on any of Linda's clothes, therefore they couldn't really link him to it either. But don't forget, he didn't... Even though he was the main prick who was standing on chairs and tables and trying to kick people in the head and kicking people while they were down, uh, he wasn't the one who stabbed Robert, therefore... You know, um, he kind he kind of gets away with this, really, doesn't he? Even though I would say that he's, even though he ended up serving six months in prison for GBH, I personally would have put him away for a long time just just for being one of those pricks who turns up at a, a pub and decides to start a fight. If indeed that's what happened. Uh, an ID parade happened on the twenty fifth of March, nineteen seventy, at three thirty p.m. at Marleybone Police Station. Um, this was for Sosson. They placed 12 men of similar height, age, general appearance and and inverted commas, class of life, whatever that means. Uh, Sosson made the decision to stand seventh from the left. So that's kind of more central. Uh, and in that era, today we do it nicely where it's kind of done by video parade and therefore the victim doesn't have to be traumatised by looking at someone. But back in this era they do it in a like a um like a parade ground or or you know out back or something like that and the suspect has to come along and touch the suspect on the right shoulder and say this is the one which must be absolutely fucking terrifying i can't believe it took so long for the police to work out that that's not a good way to do it <laughs> uh he was picked out by quite a few of the witnesses but interestingly george hayden who was a witness said i'm not too sure as well as Peter Llewellyn Jones, who started the whole fucking thing and knew them both for years, who who thought it was uh, Castry, his brother. Absolute tit. Uh, 
uh what else we got the trial happened uh started on the 18th of june uh 1970 and concluded on the 7th of july 1970 that's when when the uh the sentences was read um uh Susan was sentenced to th- uh, life in prison plus three years uh to serve consecutively that was because he was carrying a blade and that was for causing an affray and murder and part of it was served at Wormerscombe's prison uh Castry his brother was sentenced to six months in prison but suspended for two years i.e meaning if he didn't commit any acts over the next two years which were criminal he wouldn't have to go to prison and to pay 70 pounds worth of costs Nannan same even though he was one of the agitators he only he got six months in prison but suspended for two years so he didn't didn't go to prison maybe we don't know Lyndon uh was sent to six months in prison uh and many of them were considered for deportation but we don't know whether they were deported so deported not deportated so therefore we don't know much more about that uh Robert was cremated at Golders Green Cemetery on the 2nd of January 1970 think that's it i think that is it folks i think that is a yes that's it i've been waffled for too long so let's uh answer the quiz questions and then i can go off to the coffee shop i've got loads to do busy 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 and then i've got to unblock my sink oh michael your life is so exciting unblocking your sink um so let's do the quiz questions uh what part of west london is rathbone street in uh fitzrovia I probably gave that away in one of the quiz questions, but there we go. Uh, question number two. The Duke of York pub is named after the brother of which English English king? Uh, George III. Question number three. Whose face is on the outside of the pub? It's Prince Andrew. Oh, lovely. Makes you want to have a pint there, doesn't it? Question number four. What job did Susan's father do? He was a schoolmaster. Question number five, what was the name of the printing company where Susan got his first job? It was Golden Era Printing. Question number six, who was the first head of South Africa's first multi-ethnic government? It was, of course, Free Nelson Mandela. Uh, Question number seven, Castry obtained a GCE, but what does GCE mean? It was a General Certificate of Education. Question number eight, what political group did the police confuse the ANC with? Nice and easy, it was the Black Panthers. Sorry I messed up your Black Panther party. There you go, a little, little bit of Forrest Gump there. Question number nine, Susan was qualified for what job? He was a print manager. And question number ten, what 12-week course had he just finished? <sighs> it was linotyping. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, that's it, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, interesting one, weird one, strange one. One for you to mull over and to see what 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 you decide. Uh, who killed who for why? Um, next week, I think it's another one parter. It probably is. So have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe and be good. And thank you for supporting the show. It's very much appreciated. Lots of love. Now, time for me to go into silence. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.